This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. On the last episode, Nate Checkits from Roan.com explained how he built a mailing list manually, which he then used to launch to $80,000 in sales. In this episode, you'll learn how an entrepreneur completely bootstrapped their business that has now sold over 40,000 pairs of pants. In this episode, you'll learn why you should manufacture locally at first and then outsource overseas, the foundations companies should build when you're just starting out, and how to keep in contact with your customers after your Kickstarter campaign ends. Today, I'm joined by Hunter Mosin from barbellapparel.com. That's B-A-R-B-E-L-L-A-P-P-A-R-E-L.com. Barbell Apparel sells premium denim, chinos, and shorts, engineered for performance with a tailored athletic fit, and they're redefining clothing for athletic body types. And it was started in 2014 and based out of Las Vegas, Nevada. Welcome, Hunter. Thanks for having us on, Felix. Yeah, excited to have you on. So, yeah, tell us a bit more about your business. And, you know, I know you sell a bunch of different products, but give us an idea of like some of the more popular uh, lines that you carry. Well, we launched with our, our flagship denim, and that's still our most popular SKU. And um, after that, we branched out into some chinos, shorts, uh, performance tees, and some other stuff. But uh, it all kind of revolves around the same basic idea of um, premium casual wear built to fit athletic body types and kind of perform to the standard people who have outdoor hobbies or work out a lot, the standard they've come to expect from athletic gear. Cool. So did you have a background in, in apparel? Like what were you doing before starting this business? I actually didn't have a background in apparel. Um, it was just kind of an idea we had working out in the gym one day because we all do a lot of weightlifting and cycling and other stuff that's kind of made our legs pretty big. And uh, we could never find anything that fit. So we decided, hey, I bet you there's a lot of people that have this problem. And so we decided just to start kind of with the biggest offender, which is denim, and uh, make a product that was tailored to fit um, athletically built legs. And uh, just kind of went from there. And through several rounds of, of prototyping, we kind of figured out the ropes of apparel design and uh, just continued the learning process since then. Mm, very cool. So, uh, what were you doing at that time? Like, did you have a job at that at the time? Like, what what, what was your life like uh, while you were launching this business? Yeah. So, this isn't my first venture into e-commerce. Before uh, Barbell Apparel, we sold weightlifting equipment um, via e-commerce. So it was kind of a really interesting thing to cut our teeth on. Um, because it's one of the heaviest and most difficult things to ship around the country. Yeah. So it was a great learning experience. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So how did that, what happened with that business? Did, were you still running at the time that you were launching Barbell Apparel or did you close it down in between? Yeah, we were still running that full time as we launched Barbell Apparel. Originally, we didn't know um, exactly how big the Barbell Apparel idea would be. So we kind of launched it on the side just to kind of see what market reception and stuff would be. And during the first Kickstarter, we made the decision to shut down the uh, former company because demand was so high for the uh, new products we were releasing through Barbell Apparel. Wow, interesting. Yeah, this is like a, a common theme with a lot of entrepreneurs, right? Where it's always idea, 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 and always 
being dragged or being, uh, I guess, uh, uh, taunted into a specific direction to try new businesses, try to launch new businesses. Um, so how did you, uh, were you ever worried about spreading yourself too thin at first by launching this other business? Like, you know, why not double down on a business that was already running rather than starting something brand new? Uh, that's definitely a great point. But, you know, I think with a measured approach, there's always enough time to try something new. And ours is probably kind of a rare case because uh, our launch was so massively successful. Mm -hmm. I mean, in in 40 days on Kickstarter, we made more money than our previous business had done in the last year and a half. So um, we decided to just kind of run with it. But Mm -hmm. um, I think for other people, you know, it, it never hurts to kind of launch something small on the side. And then as it either gains traction or your previous business slows down or whatever, kind of readjust your priorities and take it from there. Yeah, I think this is a similar approach that you can take too if you don't have a separate business but you have a day job, for example, is to start something on the side and see what happens, you know, see if it takes off and if it gets to a point where it makes sense for you to uh, you know, close down a company or quit your day job, then definitely uh, it's a much safer kind of, uh, I guess, route to starting a business. Um, so this process, though, of shutting down a business, I think it's a really hard decision for a lot of people. I'm sure it's a hard decision for you too, even though you had a much bigger opportunity ahead of you something that you spend, you know, sound like a year and a half on and it was, I mean, I'm not sure the, the actual numbers behind all of it, but it sounded like it was an actual business. It was humming. What was that process like to shut down a business? Well, the, I mean, to be fair, the landscape in that business was becoming increasingly competitive and, um, you know, exercise equipment's pretty much a straight commodity. So with the chance to do something kind of branded and unique, we were all a lot more excited about that. And so we kind of just continued to sell off our existing inventory and just not replenish it. And that's kind of how we phased out of the previous business. Mm, okay, makes sense. Um, so you, you said before that uh, you had no uh, apparel experience previously. And I think this is another kind of common, um, not necessarily uh, issue, but a fear that other entrepreneurs have, which is that they want to get into a specific industry, but they have zero experience in it. So what was your experience like to, to learn and I guess to understand an industry that you had no prior experience in? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, with, with anything, if you have a great idea, there's experts out there that are already vastly versed in the industry you're trying to break into. And quite often, connecting with them is as simple as Googling, you know, or, or searching, you know, expert in X industry. So for us, we looked for an expert in fashion, an expert in patterning or, or uh, clothing manufacturing. And um, through through that, we were able to connect with quite a few people that really took us under their wing and showed us the ropes in those early days. And uh, I like to think since then we've become, you know, pretty well versed in our own right. But we still have um, experts we outsource more technical things to that help us develop uh, new and exciting stuff. Mm. Yeah, I think um, when you do take this approach of hiring someone that's essentially smarter than you in a specific area because they have that industry experience, it can certainly cut down that learning curve. Uh, But the issue I think early on is that because you don't know what you don't know, you kind of don't know who's actually an expert and who's not. Like, How do you work to that? How do you figure out that you know, this person is legit versus someone that's just trying to take my money and you know, not, not give me enough, uh, I guess the same value in return? Yeah, definitely. I think there's no harm in asking for references and viewing kind of their previous body of work within the industry you're going after. 
and, and seeing if it's stuff you resonate with or stuff of high quality. And then, you know, it's, it's always good to go with your instincts, meet with a person, talk with them. Um, if you can meet face to face, that's a great way to do it. But a phone call will suffice if you can't and just kind of see what they're all about. And if it's someone you'd enjoy working with and, um, quite honestly, anyone that's, that's really knowledgeable or, or even kind of deep into an industry, isn't going to try to grab your money and run. We, we started off manufacturing locally. So that gave us a great opportunity to kind of make sure who we were working with was legit. But even if you were going to go overseas, there's third party firms you can hire to audit a manufacturer or any, any sort of thing like that to where you can really do your homework and make sure you're not going to get yourself into a bad situation with your manufacturer. Mm, so was the goal to start locally just so that you can get, kind of get a feel for, I guess, take a safer route. And even though the margins were not going to be as good, uh, just start locally so that you can learn and actually be able to be face to face, maybe even walk into the factories and then eventually uh, go overseas or find places with better margins. Yeah, I think for us, it was really important because we hadn't done anything as hands on and technical as denim and chinos and, you know, selecting these, these premium fabrics. And so for us, it was a really cool, exciting time to be able to go to the factory and touch the fabrics and figure out new ways to do thing, do things and really make a product that was a bar above the rest. And through those experiences, I think we've been able to take a lot of that and uh, just kind of amplify it into our new products. Mm -hmm. So what was the um, the design process like when you were going through this? Like what kind of experts did you have to hire? And cause I know you said that you went through several rounds of prototypes. So tell, tell us a little bit about the process of designing uh, you know, apparel. Well, the, the proper way to do it is to have a pattern maker who will make you a pattern and tech packs and all sorts of things that'll that you'll send off to your manufacturer and they'll make things, you know, exactly to specification. But we definitely didn't start that glamorously. I think, you know, we all spent a lot of time in, in various types of gyms, CrossFit, normal gyms and cycling, all sorts of things like that. So we would just take our friends and, uh, the, the guys that had the problem, they're kind of like a case study for our customer. And we just measured them ourselves, wrote them down on paper, threw it into a spreadsheet and then sent it off to our, uh, original manufacturer. And, you know, he was willing to work the magic on his end and make it work for however his, his guys needed it to. But I think you'll find a lot of grace with manufacturers and all sorts of things and, and being willing to work with someone new and being able to kind of step outside their normal process to, to give you a hand in, in getting involved. So, mm -hmm. And so how many um, iterations did you have to, to go through during this process? Uh, quite a few. I think we started iterating in uh, summer of 2013. And we iterated all the way up until our launch in March of 2014. So we probably did a couple dozen iterations. We kept it all to a few sizes so we didn't have huge sample fees or anything like that because we were not starting this company with large amounts of investment or anything. Um, I think we bootstrapped it all out of our own paychecks and uh, and, and then let, let Kickstarter do the rest. But uh, I, think, I think you could definitely get it done with a dozen or less samples as long mm -hmm. as you're diligent in, in noting what's wrong and what you need to change and making sure the next sample you get is significantly closer to your vision. Yeah, you know, I think it's um, sometimes we, we when we look at these success stories, we don't look at all of the 
I want to call these failures, but we don't, we don't look at all of the rejections along the way. You know, when you get back a, a sample from the manufacturer and, and you, 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 you know, get it out to your beta testers and it's not exactly what you're looking for and you go through all these iterations. Um, what was that like to, you know, did you ever at some, some point feel like, you know, after the 10th iteration, you're like, this is not getting us any closer. We've done 10 of these already. Did you ever feel discouraged along the way? Oh man, definitely. Yeah. Um, we knew we had a great base product, but certain things were just not not right. And um, I think at a certain point, you just have to make sure it is good enough to get started and make sure that you have a plan for taking care of the customers that put faith in you while you're starting out. And I mean, even up to the Kickstarter, the samples we used in our videos and, and materials ended up being quite a bit different from the samples we delivered so there's always time to make adjustments and change things. And even with Kickstarter, your backers will tend to be very understanding. If you're like, hey, there's a delay, we're tweaking something, we want to make sure it's just right for you guys. And as long as you stay honest and, and true to the original idea, um, there's no need to let fear of the actual end product paralyze you. Mm. Yeah, this um, this thing you said about how it just needs to be good enough to get started. I want you. Can you say a little bit more about that? Like, how did you know when? Because you know, obviously, after six, ten, and then I think you said about a dozen iterations, uh, you hit something where you're like, okay, you know, this is good enough to, to go with. What did, what were you looking for to to make that determination that you know the twelfth iteration was better than the the sixth or eighth? Well, for us, it was pretty easy. We were making jeans for guys and girls that could never wear them, myself included. So when I got a sample that I was like, I'm going to wear this every day because it's so it's working so well for me. That's when I knew we had a product that would resonate with a lot of people. So mm, makes sense. So when you um, got the, the products back during all of these iterations, were you just getting them out to your friends? Like, how did you uh, test this other than just on yourself that, that the, um, the product was in a good state again, like you're saying, good enough to get started. Yeah. Well, our, our customers are pretty demanding on our products. You know, they're, they're doing a lot of crazy stuff. We have guys that rock climb in them and, you know, do tightrope walking and gymnastics and all sorts of crazy stuff. So we really just gave them to people like that and said, you, you know, wear these every day, put them through the ringer so we can make sure they stand up to your demands and that they last. And um, once we had a product that was that was fitting those criteria, we felt confident in moving forward. And I will say it's tempting to get caught up on the minute details like, oh, this label isn't right or the stitching color is a little off. But those things can all be iterated moving forward. What you really want is a core product that stands up to your customer's demand and meets the quality expectations. Little things like the small details like the rivets and buttons or, or, or whatever it is in, in your specific product can can get changed all the time, but you just want to make sure you're delivering something that your customer is going to use and love. Mm, yeah, it sounds like what you're getting at is that you have to at least nail the core value of your product. In, in your case, it sounded like just jeans that could fit these athletic uh, people. You know, all the other minute details like you're saying were not, uh, you know, part of the, I guess, the, the initial core value. So those could be not necessarily ignored, but it, you shouldn't focus on getting those perfect right off the bat. Um, so did you have like a, a formal, I guess, feedback process uh, while you're doing this? Because, you know, when you're bootstrapping, like, 
like like when you guys are bootstrapping, the last thing you want to do is to give out a bunch of products to people to try out, and then you're not getting any any you know feedback from them. It's kind of just radio silence from them, and you have to hunt them down and get feedback, and it kind of slows things down, and also obviously costs you money because you're producing all this all these samples. So how were you able to get the feedback that you needed in order to continue iterating into uh, iterating the product to a state where it was you know good enough to go out? Luckily for us, a lot of the people we were able to to give ourselves out to were friends and family and people we knew really well. So they were never much farther than a phone call away. And I just made sure to kind of check with them every one or two weeks while we were sampling and see if they had any feedback or ideas or things they wanted to do to, to make it better. Um, but even if you had to go a little further out to find your you know target customer, um, you're giving them something for free and, and people love to be a part of something. So getting a phone number and following up with text or, or call, um, I don't think anyone's going to have a problem with that. And I think that that's a great way to get feedback and kind of validate a product early on. Mm. And do you remember how many uh, beta testers or initial, I guess, friends or family that you had uh, your product out to? How many did you work with? Uh, between, you know, 10 and, and 20. Um, and I, I had, you know, some crazy athletes as, as far away as the East Coast that were trying stuff out. And, you know, no one had any issues um, leaving me feedback and letting me know how it was living up to their standards and the, the way they want it to be. Because at the end of the day, if, if you're filling a void and creating something for people that are underserved and, and don't have what they want, people are going to be really hyped about it and, and going to be stoked about being part of something that's built for them. Mm. Did you feel that that um, you know ten or twenty number was good? Did you feel like you wanted more, uh, I guess, users initially? Because and also, do you how do you def- how do you find um, I guess the correct users at first? Because it sounds like you were going out. You at least had some extreme, almost edge case users, people that were cli- like rock climbing, which I'm assuming is not going to be the majority of your market. Uh, how do you get that right balance of you know the types of users uh, of your of your product to be? Uh, to, 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 I guess, attest it in initial phases? You know, our philosophy was kind of, if it works for the fringes, it'll definitely work for the average guys. Mm. You know, if I can get a guy that's, you know, scaling, you know, hundreds of feet of, of cliff or a guy that's squatting, you know, 600 pounds and it's working out for him, the, the guy that's just your average gym goer and just wants jeans that fit him make his body look good and keep him comfortable throughout the day is going to be more than satisfied. And if it's working for the extremes, it's going to last that much longer for the average guy. So that was the crux of our design philosophy. And uh, it worked out really well for us. Mm, I think it makes sense. Uh, I'm assuming it probably will carry over well to a lot of other industries too, that as long as the most extreme cases can beat it up and still get the value out of it and it's still durable enough, then it should work for the average uh, person. Um, and, and then to the, to, for the other question, did you feel like you know 10 to 20 was good enough? Did you feel like you could have done with less? Did you feel like you could have done with more? Um, I definitely think more would have would have been better. But at a certain point, you're kind of limited by time and, and capital and things like that. So I think it was a, it was a good spot for us. And you don't need to validate your product physically with every one of your customers. And I think this is kind of a crucial part of founding a new company or a new idea that a lot of people uh, put off or don't even think about. Um, social media these days is a great way to meet your customers 
where they're at. So, you know, for us, we're like, who's our customers? People that work out, people that stay active, they run, they're into action sports, they do CrossFit. And so we went on to Facebook and Instagram, set up just a launch page website that had a basic mission statement and a picture and started meeting the people where they were at and saying, hey, this is what we're doing. Is this something you're into? Is this something you need? And people really responded well to that. And a lot of that early social media traction is what allowed us to have a successful Kickstarter launch and feel confident in putting our idea forward. Mm. Yeah, I, I like that the idea of meeting people where they're at and you don't have to meet people in person to, to validate. I think one of the concerns is that uh, what people say isn't always exactly what they'll do, right? When it comes, well, they might say they like something, but when it comes down to putting their you know hard-earned dollars down for it, it's a big jump still, right? Did you ever experience that? Not, maybe not necessarily with um, with that, but like, were you hearing things from people on social media that then doesn't then translate to them actually, you know, putting their dollars down for a particular feature or for a particular product line? Definitely. You're always going to have uh, price resistance, especially as a niche company. You know, our, our products are priced in the mid to high tier, and it's just a reflection of the higher level of quality and engineering that goes into the fabrics. But there's a certain amount of the fabrics and the, the construction and all of that. But the, And there's a certain amount of people that just shop, you know, price-based. And the, the truth is you're never going to be able to, to steal those customers away from the the giants in the industry that have, you know, just insane pricing because of tons of volume and tons of market penetration. And so for us, it's not something we worry about. There, there's a lot of people out there that need what we're serving. And for us, the important thing is connecting with those people and not just building a product that they resonate with, but building a team and a message that connects with them and I think if you do that, you'll find a large amount of carryover from your social media efforts to the actual results on your store or your Kickstarter campaign or whatever venue it is you're selling your product through. Mm, makes sense. Cool. So let's talk about the uh, the Kickstarter campaign. So you've had uh, two campaigns. We'll start with the uh, the first one, uh, which was for the the, the functional denim uh, Kickstarter campaign. You only had a goal of $15,000 ended up raising almost three quarters of a million, $735,794 from 5,288 backers. So obviously blew your goal out. Uh, maybe we'll start with the goal, like the $15,000. Like what were your plans to with that, with that money? Uh, we honestly just wanted to get enough money to meet our factory minimums and have enough money left over to fulfill it. And so that's where the goal amount came from. Um, we felt pretty dang confident that with that goal and the the footwork we had done prior to launching the campaign on social media that we would hit that goal but we had no idea that the campaign would be such a big success and um to see all that happen in real time was was awesome it blew us away yeah so obviously you well exceeded that goal um but if you were to just you know hit that goal of fifteen thousand dollars just for the factory minimums uh, you're moving forward, you know, obviously you did launch a second campaign, uh, but when you look back on it, did you feel like that's a good way to set a goal? Like, would you feel like you should have gone for 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 more? Like, is this meeting the factory minimum? And this is for anyone out there that's thinking about starting a Kickstarter campaign. Is just raising enough to reach the, the minimum order quantity for the factory? Is that a good goal to, to set? 
Well, you're going to have to trust your instincts a little bit because what you, you want enough to you want enough to buy the inventory you need to fulfill the Kickstarter, ship it to the customers, and then buy enough more to keep running the business and, and hopefully bootstrap it from there. So I do think a pitfall a lot of people can fall into is pricing just enough to send the product that the Kickstarter backers have ordered, ship it to them, and boom, you're out of cash. And now how do you run a business, right? So you need to make sure that you price enough left over to, to order what you need and have more to continue to run operations. But after that, it's just kind of your tolerance for what you want to do. For us, we were happy to you know, sell a few hundred pairs of jeans to people that were stoked on the idea, get it to them, buy a few more, throw it in the warehouse and continue to run the business. Um, if you only wanted to do something bigger, then you could set your goal higher. But I think for a lot of entrepreneurs and inventors that this is the way they're going to start a company, they really just want to get it off the ground and deliver the product to the customers and start a business and, and then bootstrap it from there. So you're basically saying that you don't want to use Kickstarter just as like a sales channel, just as a store. You really do want to use it as a way to build startup capital to kick off a business. You can't just raise enough just to ship out products and then, like you're saying, run out of cash and then you'd have to go back and raise money again, which is going to slow things down a ton. Yeah, definitely. That'll slow things down a lot and... This this really only applies if you're founding your company through Kickstarter. If if you're launching like a secondary product line and you already have an established business, you can obviously be quite a bit more flexible. But mm-hmm. makes sense. Okay, so um, the, you know, obviously, uh, we want to know how you're able to do this so quickly. You know, raise this kind of money. What kind of um, prep preparation did you do before launching the Kickstarter campaign? You know, we started probably in November of 2013. As soon as we had a sample we were moderately happy with, taking photos, spreading the word, and just like I said earlier, meeting the customers where they were at on social media and drumming up some excitement and some reach to launch our campaign in March. So it was several months of of legwork beforehand to be able to build that foundation. And I think it was probably the biggest reason we were able to have such a successful campaign. Um, there's a few components that went into making the campaign such a huge success, but we launched the Kickstarter um, on March 21st. Our goal was $15,000 and we hit that goal in 45 minutes. And I think it was within the first two days we had surpassed $80,000 all on our own. And this is before we had any press coverage. And this is back when Kickstarter was quite a bit smaller in its notoriety, too. You know, you didn't have Kickstarters doing millions and millions of dollars back then. I think a lot of that just early market validation and building that early community around it was was the big crux of, of getting the campaign um, successfully funded because a Kickstarter also needs to kind of reach this point of critical mass where people can mm-hmm. look at it and say, I feel comfortable putting my money into this because other people are, are believing what these guys are doing and it looks like it's something that's actually going to be successful. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. That, that kind of social proof uh, goes a long way. A lot of people will be happy to be early adopters and put in money when the, when the uh, campaign isn't backed yet, 
but there are a lot of people, I think me included, are hesitant to put in money on Kickstarter or or any kind of crowdfunding until it's hit its goal and we know that this is much more of a guaranteed thing. So I think that that's important that you say that there's different kind of stages of a Kickstarter campaign that attracts different types of backers, people that are much more, I guess, uh, risky and people that are uh, that are less uh, risk averse and want to wait until there's a little more social proof. Um, so you, you know, once the, 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 uh, the ball kind of got rolling with this traction, did you, how did you bolster it with, um, you know, from 80,000 to three quarters of a million, still a big jump. So like what helped you go from, you know, 80,000 to uh, three quarters of a million, like what kind of promotion did you guys do? Um, it was all on our own, honestly. Um, a lot of people think like you need a marketing expert or a, a PR firm or something like that, but I just, you know, found journalists and in, in publications I thought would be into what we were doing that kind of covered either crowdfunding or fashion, just something at least related to what we were doing. And I tracked down their email and I wrote them and I wrote hundreds of them. You know, I stayed up all day and all night just writing journalist after journalist after journalist. And out of those hundreds, I probably got one or two that actually replied to me. And one decided to pick us up and, and write about us in Fast Company. And that was kind of the beginning of all of it, because once that article got published, um, it was a lot easier to get other journalists to Mm -hmm. um, get in touch with me. And it just kind of snowballs from there. Yeah, this is this whole thing about social proof again. Once someone puts their puts, uh, I guess, sticks their neck out there and and is and is ready to, I guess, not necessarily, not necessarily co-sign what you guys are doing, but at least cover it, then it's going to be a lot easier for other press uh, outlets to to do the same. Um, so, how did you um, how did you pitch these uh, these uh, uh, PR uh, these publications? Or did you just come to them and say, "Hey, this is my Kickstarter campaign," or like what 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 really worked for you to to get them to pay attention and eventually cover uh, your campaign? Yeah, I mean, with with any expert or someone of influence you're trying to get in touch with, you have to keep in mind these guys are getting slammed all day by people saying, look at me, cover what I'm doing. And so you don't want to be that guy, you know, whether you're trying to reach out to someone in manufacturing or journalism or whatever, they, they're so often, you know, just bombarded with requests that I think just acting like a real person and taking some time to get to know them before you email them and look at what they do, look at what they cover, look at what they're into, and then relate to them on a level that they understand and uh, sympathize with will give you a lot higher success rate. So for us, I just spent time finding journalists you know, that actually covered what we were about, whether it was fitness or fashion or crowdfunding. And then I read you know, articles they'd written and said, what is this guy like? How can I relate to him? What do we have in common? And then when I reached out to him, I, you know, tailored the email around that and tried to establish some common ground and, you know, present myself as someone they'd want to talk to. So... Mm, it makes sense. Um, so the second campaign that you launched, which was uh, called The Greatest Pants and Shorts Ever Made, love that title, had a goal of $40,000. And this one raised $179,000 from about 1,000 backers. So what was different about this campaign? Like, What was the, the goal of this particular campaign compared to the first one? Where the first one was, was you know to launch your entire business. But the second one looks like it came about a year or so afterwards. I'm assuming the business was humming along already at that point. Why return to Kickstarter? You know, I think a lot of people might not return to Kickstarter for a second time, and we didn't need the capital, but 
we really enjoyed the Kickstarter process the first time of using it as kind of a medium to introduce a new product line. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's kind of something that's really difficult to replicate on a website where you have a story and a video and people feel comfortable sinking in, you know, 10, 15 minutes to kind of get to know this new product and get to know this new idea. You know, no one is, is spending that much time on a, on a clothing page on a mm-hmm. retail website. And so we just really we're into the story of the, the process of creating a story behind the new product launch. And so that's why I went to kick back to Kickstarter. And, um, with that campaign, most of the backers were previous customers of ours. We didn't get a lot of media coverage or anything that time. And so for us, it was just kind of a way to create a cool and new, exciting story for the customers we did have, and then bring in a few new customers that saw it, um, secondhand. So, yeah, I, I never thought about that, that um, what you're saying about how people are much more willing to spend the time, uh, give you their their attention on Kickstarter rather than just a storefront. And I think it has a lot to do with the almost the state of mind that people come into a website and their, their intentions, right? You come to Kickstarter not because you're necessarily shopping around, but you're almost looking for entertainment to some degree, right? Yeah. You're trying to... Trying to uh, find these new products and it's interesting when there's a new product that you haven't heard of before and when it comes to a store I don't know I guess you, what you're saying makes a lot of sense I'm not sure what the kind of magic it, it is about Kickstarter but uh, now that you mentioned it, it does make a lot of sense that it's a lot easier to introduce a product a lot easier to hold someone's attention for a long time on Kickstarter versus just like a product page like you're saying so I think that that's yeah. um, definitely an interesting angle for using Kickstarter not just to fundraise but to introduce a new product um, so so you know now, now that you've had two under two uh, Kickstarter campaigns under your belt, uh, what what did you change? You know between those two campaigns, like did you learn anything? What did you learn from that first campaign that you said? I guess two part question that you said I, we definitely have to do this next time. And what did you say we we should remove for the next campaign? Well, most of the things we decided to change with the campaign happened on the production side. So that um, fulfillment and production and stuff was a lot quicker and a lot smoother. Um, as far as the nuts and bolts of like the campaign and the creatives and the videos, we kept a lot of that the same, and we were really happy with how it worked both times. Um, but there's definitely a big learning experience in actually fulfilling, you know, nine thousand pairs of pants that we did on the first Kickstarter that uh, we were able to carry over to the second one to make the whole delivery and manufacturing process a lot smoother. Yeah, you know, when you guys did raise that initial $736,000, was it, um, were you guys looking at each other excited or like freaking out because now there's you know, much, much bigger business than you guys had probably imagined uh, when you were starting this out? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's impossible not to be excited when um, people are that excited about an idea you're, you're, you're putting forth, but we were also pretty terrified. (laughs) Um, we, you know, we expected to make a few hundred, maybe a thousand pairs of jeans. And I think by the time it was all said and done between all the different backer levels and stuff, we ended up selling somewhere over 9,000. And so we were like, Oh my, we were, we had no idea how we were going to make all of those jeans and uh, fulfill them within the time frame we had, we had estimated, and um, we didn't. We missed our time frame by f- quite a few months. But um, we just made it a point to stay honest with the backers during the time and just say, look, um, we had no idea that we were going to, you know, f- you know, raise four thousand times more than our goal or whatever it was, and you're going to, you know, please excuse the the time it takes us 
to to get all of this worked out, but we're working on it. Um, because of the funding level, you're going to get a better product that's more refined and has more detail going into it. And when you do get it, we know you're going to love it. So just um, thank you for your support and thank you for your patience. And we're doing everything we can to get this to you as quickly as possible. Yeah, that kind of transparency communication is definitely something I've heard time and time again from successful uh, Kickstarter campaigns that have had to deal with uh, delays, which I think is uh, pretty common with Kickstarter campaigns. Uh, and you mentioned earlier on the podcast that uh, that the end product was a bit different than what was initially on the Kickstarter campaign. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming this was for the first product. Uh, what was different and how did you know that it would be, I guess, okay to release, uh, not release, but to provide a product that was um, different than what was, I guess, advertised. We got samples during production to make sure that they lived up to our previous standards and everything. And from our, you know, from all the testing we did before, we already had the materials and the, the you know, the metals and every and the stitching and everything we knew needed to be the nuts and bolts from it. Um, from from there, with the, the success of the Kickstarter, it just kind of allowed us to go in and really brush up on the finer details. Like mm. the the stuff I said wasn't critical before, but it's nice to have like the labels and the you know the details on the rivets and and things like that. Just kind of the nice finishing touches that take it from you know, hey, I got this proof of concept on Kickstarter to I got this finished you know polished product on Kickstarter. So we were really excited to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it sounds like all kind of enhancements, not things that you guys are taking away. So I think that certainly helps your cause. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, with uh, such a big uh, order, you know, it's at nine thousand, uh, I guess, uh, backers essentially, nine thousand customers. I'm assuming you had to learn fulfillment and manufacturing at scale very fast and get it all set up very fast. What was that process like? You know, how did you guys learn? How did you guys get it all set up and going? You said that you missed the the gold date, the delivery date by a couple of months, but I think that's still, you know, very reasonable. Uh, I'm assuming you still had to rush and figure everything out very quickly. Tell us about that that process, that the the time right after the Kickstarter campaign. Again, it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about finding experts and things that you are not an expert in. And so we knew we were going to have 5,000 plus packages to send out. And so we found a a third party warehouse that was experienced in dealing with um, volume and could get, you know, 9,000 pairs of of jeans and pack them into 5,000 packages and send them out within a a reasonable time frame. And if we had attempted to do that ourselves, it would have been a a mess and it would have taken forever. So I think it was definitely um, one of the smarter things we decided to do and getting the help of someone else who who was an expert in doing that so that we could, um, once we got the product, fulfill it within a reasonable time frame. Mm. And you mentioned, so we, we saw that there's 5,288 backers for that first campaign, but you said when it was all said and done with, it was 9,000, uh, I guess, pairs shipped. Were people ordering this product or pre-ordering it outside of Kickstarter? Like, how was that set up? They were. That wasn't part of that figure, though. A, a lot of that was just uh, package tiers that were for multiple pairs. So um, the, But to, to echo on what I was saying... Um, after the Kickstarter, I think a lot of people will just go dark with their product, with their projects Mm -hmm. and just kind of say, okay, we're working on making everything now. And they'll lose all of that momentum that they worked on building through Kickstarter. And so we decided we didn't want to do that. And as soon as the Kickstarter went down, um, these days it's pretty popular to just kind of move over to Indiegogo and keep going. 
but for us, we just launched a storefront on mm-hmm. Shopify. So, you know, um, I signed up for a Shopify account, built a quick storefront, and it was nothing super impressive or pretty back then. But as soon as the Kickstarter went down, we threw up our website and started pushing all the traffic that was still coming in, even though the Kickstarter deadline had ended, um, to the website, and we continued to take pre-orders on there. Mm, very cool. I think that's an important point about not going dark. Again, uh, don't because you have all this. It's also almost like trying to catch lightning in a bottle. Once you have it, don't just let it go. When you have all this buzz and have all this attention on you, and especially if they're coming to the Kickstarter page and they're finding out about it, you don't want them to just hit a dead end and find out that it's too late for them to order. You want to give them the opportunity to do so. And it sounded like you guys did just that. Um, so one thing that you mentioned uh, during some of the pre-interview questions was about uh, your experience in foundation building, especially with um, finding founding a company, about founding a company early on. Tell us a little bit more about this. Like, What does it mean when you say foundation building? Well, I think there's a few components to that, but one of the most important things um, with turning something like a Kickstarter into a business is – you know, at some point you're going to have to sit down and say, we launched a product on Kickstarter and it was something people liked and it was something people wanted, but very few businesses are just one product. So, um, we sat down and we decided, okay, people are resonating with, with something about this. What is the core value or the essence of what they like about us? And how can we turn that into something that's not just genes, but is a company that serves this need? And so building that early foundation and kind of mission statement um, allowed us to turn what was a product into a business and is now a line of things for customers to buy and really helped us focus our efforts and our goals on achieving that mission. I think there's an important point to um, to definitely think, uh, like you're saying, don't don't kind of put yourself in a corner and actually be able to set up a runway for you to expand your brand to be able to grow and and you know get into different markets, different product lines. I think maybe an issue though is that some entrepreneurs will spend too much time thinking about that early on and think about this grand scheme even before initial launch. So for your case, did you guys have all this laid out before your first product, before before that Kickstarter campaign, or was this something that you started to figure out after a successful launch of just one product? Yeah, because it wasn't our first uh, venture as entrepreneurs, we kind of already knew that things never work out you know, in real life as they do in your head. And so um, we learned a long time ago that you kind of just got to throw it out there and then roll with the punches and change as your customers demand or as a market demand or whatever. So we didn't have a grand scheme of how this company was going to take shape. We just knew we had an idea we liked and that people around us liked. And so we decided to start with that. And um, as it built momentum, we went from there. And I think a lot of people would benefit from taking the same approach. And you don't have to have this giant plan for how you're going to, you know, conquer the world and, and, you know, get, huge amounts of market share with this idea and build an empire. All it takes is a spark and something you're willing to invest in and something that people resonate with. And out of that, a ton of opportunity will come and you'll find out a lot of things your customers need that you didn't know and that you can make and that people will love. And so um, for us, it was just being able to get in front of those people and being able to talk with them and being able to be in a position where we could get their feedback and get their demands 
and make something that they were really excited about. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you have to have a product out there. You have to have customers before you're actually in the game. And once you're in the game, then you can actually kind of adapt to like you're saying and, and roll with the punches and actually figure out. Because if you don't have any customers, you have no one that, that you are able to contact, that you're able to get feedback from. You're kind of still you know running around blind. So it's not a good idea, I don't think, to plan too far ahead when you don't have this kind of feedback system set up that you would have set up when you have customers and have a product out there already. Um, so are there any kind of early foundational things, uh, foundational elements to the companies that, that you've built that you, you know, think back and say, I wish I spent more time on this because now it's kind of butting you in the butt because you didn't spend more time on it? You know, um, there's, there's a laundry list of things I could go <laughs> over that I wish I had done differently back when we first started the company. And I'm sure that's going to be the same for almost anyone. But uh, a few key things, get ways to stay in touch with your customers from right off the bat. You know, we didn't start collecting, um, we, we collected emails through social media before we launched our Kickstarter campaign by hand and all sorts of crazy ways, just any way we could do to get them in a database. But after we launched the website, we didn't invest heavily into uh, technology or software to kind of automate that. And so we probably missed out on, you know, I don't even want to think about it, thousands of emails mm-hmm. that customers would have happily given us to stay in touch, but we just weren't aggressive enough about giving them a way to provide that to us. And so just little things like that, you know, things that, that are easy to automate, email, staying in touch with your customers, you know, setting up emails that say, thank you for your order and things like that. And just being able to touch base and show your customers you care about them and and stuff like that that's easy and scalable. I would definitely recommend everyone do that right away. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Um, so email marketing, like you're saying, is something that you wish you had spent more time on. What is that the marketing channel that works best for you today? Or like what kind of marketing channels uh, have been, um, do you focus on, on these days? Well, you know, I think so our, our core customers, the, the athletic guy or girl that's into, you know, whatever their hobby is, um, being outdoors, lifting weights and, and being active. And those kind of people are everywhere. And I think it's reflected, um, in our traffic sources, you know, direct traffic for us, social media and um, like search traffic are all pretty close. You know, there's no standout um, magic bullet. that's kind of like, this is where we get all our traffic from. We kind of get it from everywhere. And so we invest a lot of time into all those channels and just being where people are searching for. And especially for us, kind of as the inventors of a new niche, like athletic casual wear or whatever you'd call it, there's not like keywords we're optimizing for all the keywords that bring us traffic are keywords we invented, you know, athletic fit Mm -hmm. chinos, athletic fit jeans, um, you know, barbell jeans, things like that. And so I think just making sure you take the time to put your your company and your idea in the places where people are already spending time and they're already looking, um, is the best thing you can do to make sure that you're generating the traffic and the interest you need to create a sustainable business. Mm. Can you give us an idea of how successful the business is today? Um, Well, we've sold over 40,000 pairs of uh, pants at this point, and so we're pretty excited about that. And um, we plan on keeping with that trend with the launch of quite a few new exciting products through this holiday season. And um, we're more than doubling in size every year. And we've done it all on our own, bootstrapped, and uh, and we're really proud of that. And I think it shows that, you know, 
with an idea and hard work and the willingness to listen to your customers that you can pretty much do anything, which is really cool. Mm, awesome. So what do you uh, spend your day-to-day on today when you walk into the office? How do you uh, spend your time? Um, I do everything, really. And I think that a lot of business founders uh, find themselves in this role where you're kind of just doing a ton of stuff. And um, so I do everything from the marketing to a lot of the man- management and business development. And even I even do inventory projections and some customer support. So um, the the way we've built out our team is that when I found something was taking too much of my time or I was really just not that great at it, uh, we would hire someone to fill that role that was really good at it or that could do it a lot quicker or a lot more efficiently than I could. Mm, so what what would you um what do you wish you could spend all your time doing you know at the company? Um, if I could focus on one thing, it would definitely be uh, the business development and just making sure we were staying on the cutting edge of creating new products and creating new content that resonated with our customers and kept them excited about what we're doing. Luckily, I have a team of some awesome people that help me with all of that. And so we're able to stay on top of it. But uh, if I could focus on one thing, it would definitely be that. Cool. So yeah, earlier you were talking about how you had uh, wish you would spend more time investing in technologies that you know help automate things or easy to set up, easy to make your make your life easier once you have set up. So what kind of uh, other apps or tools do you uh, heavily rely on today to keep the business running? You know, inside of Shopify, we don't run a ton of apps, but we definitely run pop-ups to make sure that we give people an opportunity to give us their email. We have, you know, um, email drip campaigns that make sure that they stay in touch with the customers and maybe, you know, shore up some questions they may have about what our company does or, you know, give them new products to look at that they may not have seen. Um, We have a lot of our advertising automated um, I think remarketing, you know, there's several companies that offer it. We use AdRoll and I love what they do over there, uh, is a great component that's that's very automated and can do a lot of work that would take you a long time to do on your own. Getting a referral program in place is awesome because uh, it gives your customers something to share with their friends that they're quite often excited about. And, you know, it's a great way to build kind of a loyalty program around that because they can get incentivized to share, which is something they'd be doing anyways quite often. So it's kind of a win-win for everyone. Which uh, app do you use for that? We use Referral Candy on the Shopify platform. Um, Getting an affiliate program up and running is a great way to do things. Um, For us, we like to use a lot of social media influencers and we find a lot of real people that, that actually already own our product and like what we do and happen to have a big Instagram following or Facebook following or whatever it is um, because they're, they're an athlete or that, you know, they excel in a specific domain. And then we just say, hey, you know, we, we see you're already kind of into what we're about. Uh, how would you feel about getting on an affiliate program and just, you know, kind of incentivizing them to, to continue doing what they're doing and giving them a reason to share with their they're following and we use uh, Refersion for that. You know, we use Zendesk to help automate a lot of our support. Um, one of the things we pride ourselves in is that we do free shipping, free exchanges, free returns. And if you ever have an issue with your order, when you write in, you're going to talk to a real person. But uh, Zendesk helps us keep all of that really organized so that 
our customer support dudes can can come in and, and keep track of their conversations and provide people the service they need. So um, that's a really helpful one. And outside of that, I think the Shopify platform itself is just super awesome. And um, it, you know, I, I've been involved in e-commerce for quite a while now before Shopify was really what it is today. And back then there was so much to worry about with just making sure your website stayed up and it wasn't going to crash and um, staying top of all, on top of all your certificates and all these different things that Shopify itself just streamlines and makes it so you don't even have to think about. So you can focus on the core aspect of, of running your business well and, and doing what it is you excel at. So, um, you know, what the Shopify platform at, a, at its core does is invaluable in that regard. Mm, awesome. So what, what do you have uh, planned for the next year? What are some goals that you have for, for Barbell Apparel? We have a ton of new product launches coming through the holiday season that I think people are are really going to be excited about. We have a new um, technical like slack type pant that you could, you know, dress up and, and wear to work or wear out or you could, you know, go mountain biking and it'll do whatever you throw at it, which is awesome. Um, we have some new fits and jeans for guys that even have bigger legs than our typical customer, um, some new colors coming out. And uh, we're really excited with with getting that stuff in front of our customers. Um, outside of that, you know, we're just going to continue doing the things that have uh, made us successful so far. And I think it's tempting to, to feel like there's some, you know, magic trick or, or giant hit that'll make uh, business successful or an overnight sensation. But what I found through, you know, more than just this business and even in my, the previous stuff we did is that there's those things will happen and, you know, they'll come along every once in a while and it's awesome. Some sort of, it's a big hit, you know, like we got shouted out on Joe Rogan's podcast completely to our surprise. You know, he just happened upon our stuff and, and really liked it. And, that, that was awesome. And we saw a big traffic spike and it was cool, but it only lasts for a little while. And so the, the truth is a successful business is just coming in every day and working hard and amplifying the things you do that have brought you to the point you're at. And so for us, that's, you know, providing a great product, providing great customer service and uh, building a, a brand and a product that's real to the people that, that we, re- that we identify with. And, you know, even my customer support guys are, you know, working out every day and, and we have, you know, their, their workout time is, is programmed into their workday so they can make sure to get that done. And as a team, we go out mountain biking on the weekends and stuff so that, you know, when a customer writes in to get athletic gear, you know, we're, we're our own customer too. I haven't bought clothes in, you know, years. All I wear is our stuff. And so just making sure you stay, you know, rooted in where you came from and rooted in in what you're about, um, and and doing that every day, it just builds up over time and exponentially kind of grows from there. Mm, awesome, yeah, great way to end the podcast. I think that's important. Note that there's really no magic, no secret, like you're saying, to it. Just coming in and putting in the work every day. So again, thanks so much for your time, Hunter. Barbellapparel.com is a website. Anywhere else you recommend listeners check out to follow along with what you guys are up to? Yeah, I mean, the best way to stay in touch with what we're doing is. Uh, throw your email in on barbellapparel.com and you'll get like a $10 gift card, which is a cool way to, to order something from us for the first time. Um, other than that, we're also really active at facebook.com slash barbellapparel. Again, that's B-A-R-B-E-L-L 
A-P-P-A-R-E-L, or uh, Instagram.com slash Barbell Apparel. Cool. Yeah, we'll link all that in show notes. Again, thanks so much for your time, Hunter. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Felix. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.